Church, we are in Romans chapter 6 this morning, and what a pivotal chapter in this book of Romans. I said last week that there's a shift that's beginning in the book of Romans because up to this point, we've been talking about the issue of justification, that these first four, or really five chapters and into the fifth chapter, the discussion has been that the wrath of God is being poured out upon this world Because of sinfulness, man has suppressed the truth. Man has rejected God. Man, in every way, has gone his own way. And so the wrath of God, the just wrath of God, is being poured out on mankind. But in chapter 4, and really in chapter 3, we began to catch glimpses of the way that you and I would be forgiven, the way that we would be justified. The thought now enters our mind and now enters into the story of Romans that literally man can be saved. Even though we're sinners, the Bible clearly teaches us that the wrath of God has been turned away because of grace. And by faith, we receive the gift of God. By faith, like Abraham, when he heard the words of God, he believed the words of God, and his belief was counted to him as righteousness. What is it that we believe? That Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God who died on Calvary's cross to take away our sins. That he was buried, and he rose again, and today he stands, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And you know what the reality is? He's coming again. And because of these truths, and we trust and believe these truths that Christ died for us, and that is the only way that we can be saved, the Bible says that in that moment that you believe, you're justified. And it's as if you've never sinned. You're declared by God for the first time in your life not guilty. Your sins are removed. Christ's righteousness is on you. Again, if the book of Romans stopped right there, it would be a glorious book. It would be a wonderful place to stop, but there's actually a greater place. And the reason we keep going in the book of Romans is because that's not the end of the story. What we have found is at this point in the book of Romans, God has dealt with the penalty of sin. But God's not through yet. God wants us to understand this morning that not only did he die... Not only did Christ come and die so that our sins could be forgiven, so the penalty of sin could be removed, but he died for us so that while we are still living in this life, the power of sin can also be broken. And you see, we go from the discussion of justification into the story of sanctification. Now that we've been declared not guilty, God is going to say to us in the next few chapters of the book of Romans that your sins can not only be forgiven, but you can be out from under the power of sin. That you're no longer a slave to sin, but you have now become as a believer a slave to righteousness. And not only are we justified, but the Bible says that we have been sanctified and that we are being made into the image of Jesus Christ. And that death that comes with sin, that destruction that comes with sin, we no longer have to do those things, but we can live a life of holiness. Now, I want you to hear me out front this morning. I didn't say a life of perfection. But folks, I want to challenge you today To understand this one fact, that when you come in contact with Jesus Christ and you, by faith, trust Him, believe Him, when you surrender to Him, when you repent, when you truly follow Jesus Christ, a transformation in life happens. I want you to hear me say very clearly, you can't 
come to Jesus and understand and touch his transformative power and not be changed. You can't come away changed. Now, you can come to Jesus just as we used to sing in those hymns, just as you are. But the glory of the gospel is that once you come to him just as you are, you leave and you're never the same again because everything changes. I love this quote. It says, any justification, now understanding with what I just said, this, hopefully this will make sense to you, any justification that does not lead to sanctification, this pastor said, it is a sham. Any sanctification not founded upon justification, it's just an exercise in legalistic futility, and it doesn't deserve the name of salvation. John Owen said it well. He said, for believers, this is what we have to understand, that as believers in Jesus Christ, because we've been set free from sin, John Owen said this. He said, you must be killing sin or else you need to recognize that sin will be killing you. I want you to realize with me this morning, church, that Christ's death for sin, and Jesus Christ died for sin. I don't want you to miss that point. That was the point of everything we've studied to this point in the book of Romans. Christ's death for sin, you know what it becomes? His death for sin becomes our death to sin. Let that sink in a second. Christ's death for sin becomes our death to sin. Let me read to you what the book of Romans chapter 6 has to say about this. And we'll go through verse 14 today. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What a beautiful, beautiful section of Scripture. Now, let me ask a question of you guys in the sound booth. What time do I have to be done preaching? Oh, it's not on that sheet? All right, well, good luck, guys. We're going to see what happens. When they put me this early in service, I'm not sure. 
Ten, I have to be done at 10.55. No, it can't be 10.55. Uh, okay, 9 what? It can't be 9.25, it's 9.30. That's all right. I'm going to just keep going. Lord, I'm five minutes over. I ain't even got started. Huh? 10.05. All right, that sounds better. I can go to 10.05. I was like, good Lord, I'm in, I'm in my introduction. Can I get, can I get 10.15? All right. That's funny. Usually there's a thing up here that just I didn't see it, so I wasn't sure what I was doing this morning. All right. There's some things I want. Now I'm, now I'm laughing. I can't quit. All right. There's some things I want us to see this morning that this text is warning us about. And it's telling us not to fall for a few things. The reason Paul begins this section of Scripture the way that he does, he's continuing from chapter 5. If you remember the last thing that he said over in chapter 5, he went on and said uh, in verse 20, the law uh, came and so that transgressions would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What he said here and how he finished chapter 5, he left it in a place where if we're not careful, we could have some wrong logic. And what he's going to say to us right off the bat in chapter 6, he's going to tell us don't fall for the wrong logic. When he said in the end of chapter 5 that because sin increased, grace increased all the more. Another way of putting it is he says where, where sin abounds, Really, the best way to translate that word, it's horrible in English, but it's like he would say that, that grace superabounds. So wherever you have sin, grace is greater. I think that was exactly how we left last week, that, that Christ is greater than Adam, that the gift of Christ is better than the penalty of sin that came through Adam. But he says, if you're not careful, you're going to take those words and you're going to apply false logic. And he says, do not fall. Number one, do not fall for wrong logic. You see, what he ends up saying is, if you're not careful, the logic that you could take from the verses at the end of chapter 5, you could somehow come to the conclusion that the more we sin, the more grace will abound. You see how it's an easy leap to that? Because he says, well, if sin, if, if in sin, you know, it abounds more and more, grace superabounds more and more, he says, then really the logical conclusion to someone could be, well, then why don't we just keep on sinning? If somehow God is glorified when he gives grace, then, then what is the harm in sinning? You would think, well, that is so foreign, but folks, that's not foreign to us today. There are many people that live their lives in what we would call license. Let me put it this way to you. They think they have a license to sin. Lasciviousness is a, is a big doctrinal word that simply means that people come to the conclusion that they can just keep on sinning because God will keep on forgiving. So it doesn't really matter how I live. Now, now you may not realize that's how you live, but most of us, if we're not careful, we find ourselves right there. We're stuck in the middle of having to make a decision, and we know what's right, and we know what's wrong, we know what's sin, and we know what's holy. And yet many of us get to that fork in the road and we have to make a decision. Do I do what makes me happy? Do I do my will even though I know what God's will is? 
Some of us literally sit at a fork in the road where we know the decision we're about to make has wide-ranging implications, not just for ourselves, but everybody that we love in our lives. And literally we know that if we're not careful, the decision we make could ruin our lives. And yet we stand there and in our head we start to rationalize and we start to think. Hey, at the end of the day, I'm a Christian. God can forgive me. God wants to. Folks, Paul is going to answer that question. Because most of us don't want to think that we use that illustration or we say that thing. But how many times in our life have we tried to do that? The more we sin, we think the more grace will abound. We say that sin doesn't matter. Because God's going to forgive it anyways. When we say that sin doesn't matter and God's going to just forgive us anyways, I want you to understand that we are making a terrible trade. And that trade is on the mercy of God. We make an excuse for sinning. We think in our human terms, I mean, I want you to think with me for a minute. How many of us really think it's a good idea to trade on the mercy of another person? We don't realize what it is that we're doing to the Lord who is gracious and kind and merciful. How despicable would it be for a son to consider himself free to sin because he always knows that his father will forgive him. You see, what we're doing is we're taking advantage of love. And we're actually breaking love's heart because God is love. Could you imagine if your best friend stood before a court and said they got 20 years of somebody's got to do 20 years for the crime that was committed. And literally they took your place and a judge said, that's fine. Someone's got to do the jail time. I'll set you free and I'll let them pay the penalty for your sin. Could you imagine at the end of 20 years, if when they were about to get out again, you thought to yourself, well, you know what? I can do what I did again. You know why? Because they'll forgive me again. At such a great price. Let me ask you, what kind of a person would we be if we did that? Do you see what Paul is trying to say to us? He's trying to say, look and understand the ramifications of sin and don't for a second think that the more we sin, the more grace will abound. And that gives us permission to sin just because God will forgive it anyways. Some of us come to the faulty conclusion that sin must be an excellent thing because it gives the grace of God a chance to operate. Well, let me give you Paul's answer to that. Paul says, God forbid. May it never be. That is the strongest way in the Bible, in the Greek, that a person can say, no. May it never be that we presume upon the grace of God, that we trade upon the mercy of God. 
simply because we look and we say, well, he will forgive us and, and he loves us and, and I'm just going to let my sin abound because somehow in some weird way we believe that we're honoring God. Folks, I'm telling you, it's not something so foreign to the church as we want to believe that it is. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. And he asked the question, how shall we who died to sin live in it? Don't fall for the wrong logic. But secondly, I don't want you to fall for the wrong message. I don't want you to fall for the message that says we can follow Jesus and live the same sinful life. You see, there are many people that that's exactly where they are. That They have a profession. They, they are trying to say something with their mouth that isn't lining up with their life. And I want you to realize and I want you to understand with me this morning that we don't want to fall for the wrong message because nowhere in the scripture does it say that we can follow Jesus and live the same sinful life. Now, I am not telling you, nor am I proclaiming to you today that somehow believers live in sinless perfection. But what I am saying to you is that 1 John, as well as texts like this and texts all over the New Testament, point to the same thing, <coughs> that when you repented of your sin, the direction of your life changed. That's what it means to repent. You weren't the same person anymore. When we talk about conquering sin in your life, it is not, and I want you to write this down, remember this, if you don't remember anything else I say today, that conquering sin in your life isn't as much an, a, an act of your will and, and, and your own power, that that's how you're going to conquer sin, as much as it is accepting and believing in your identity in Christ. The reason so many of us struggle in sin is because we don't really know who we are in Him. We don't really know what it is that He's done for us. We have accepted a wrong message. We have accepted a lie that says that, you know what, it doesn't matter how I live. I can follow Christ and follow the world at the same time. Folks, the Scripture does not bear that out. I can... Say I'm in Jesus, but I, I look like the rest of the world. The, the Bible does not bear that out. Uh, you know, I can go to church and be religious and be baptized and give money and help the poor. And I can do all these religious things. But yet my whole life can be lived out and, and just looks as pagan as the next person. See, I think that's why mostly the world rejects the message that we try to send. It's because in their mind, they watch a sin-filled church and they're wondering, why in the world do I need that Jesus? He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it any longer? He says, don't you know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. So that Christ, so that as Christ was raised from, or I'm sorry, so it, wow. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. 
He says the course of your life changes when you follow Christ. Your very nature changes when you follow Jesus Christ. Folks, there is no, I'm the same person after I met Jesus. He uses the illustration of baptism and the very thing that it points out, this is meant to be a grave. When someone goes under the waters of baptism, it is symbolizing that this person has died with Jesus Christ. The sins have not only been forgiven, but the power of sin is broken. And the man that goes under the water is gone. And now the man that rises from the water, guess what? Does it not say he's completely what? New. He's completely new. What was old is gone. He's completely new. And what that means is it doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle with temptation. It doesn't mean that our flesh isn't going to cry out to us to do certain things, that all those lusts have gone away. What it means is that rather than living the habitual life of sin that we were living, loving it, Glorying in it. Proud of it. That everything within us begins to be disgusted with it. We start to hate sin the way God hates sin. And more and more he begins to take our desires and our lusts. And he makes us love the right things. And he makes us hate the right things. And folks, I'm telling you that when you come to Jesus Christ, everything changes for you it is about the habitual life of sin i can tell you this and i will be transparent and honest with you ask my children ask my parents ask my friends ask anybody that you want your pastor is a sinner i'm not going to stand here and try to act before you as if i have reached some kind of sinless perfection But I want you to know the man that I was when I got saved, he died. I don't look like that man. I don't sound like that man. I don't act like that man. I don't think like that man. That man died. And as I have been being sanctified in Jesus Christ, as he has been growing me, I am not telling you that there are not ups and downs to the journey that I have been walking. But I want you to know I'm not walking the same direction that I was walking before I found him. And I'm not the same man that I was when he found me. And the transition and the transformation in my life and in your life should be apparent to everyone that knows you. You ought to be able to go back to your high school reunion and say, you became a what? So we can't come to this place where we think we can follow Jesus and live the same sinful life. That's not the message of Scripture. We don't just continue to sin habitually. But I want you to understand the wrong message sometimes is that we can achieve transformation apart from Christ. You can't achieve the kind of transformation we're talking about. That's why God says, you have to come to me to be transformed. You have to come to me to be forgiven. If you want to be saved, you have to come just as you are because you can't make something better of yourself without the power of God in your life. And you say, well, no, no, no. For a couple of weeks, I can change things. You're right. For a couple of weeks, you can. But guess what? You're going to go right back to it. And if you don't go back to it, you'll, you'll substitute one addiction for another, one sin for another. Until Christ transforms you, understand that you can never, ever earn grace. You can never, ever earn salvation. Folks, I'm here to tell you today, if you don't realize 
that the Christian life is lived out not in your strength, not in your power. You are transformed by Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, as Clint said so well a few weeks ago, you can do what? Nothing. I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me and I will remain in you. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. It's because we've been identified with Christ. It's because of what the cross did to forgive us of our sins and to break the power of sin in the grave. All of that is what gives us this new life that is talked about. And he says that this new life, I love the way he puts it in verse 4. He says, so that we too might walk in it. He's telling you that it's not an issue of sinless perfection. It's an issue of where are you walking? How are you walking? Is the walk of your daily life becoming more and more like Jesus? Or are you just becoming more and more like the world? The wrong message is also that we can be in Christ and yet remain a slave to sin. Folks, I want you to know this morning that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel message, it does not rationalize our sin. Salvation by God's grace does not lead us to some kind of moral carelessness. I just want you to think for a moment how little sense that makes. Imagine, many of you remember years ago, remember people being trapped in wells? People being, remember the child fell in the well years ago? Could you imagine what it would be like to have someone who's fallen into a well and we could actually access them simply by a rope? And if you threw the rope down there, and even though the rope was in grasp, even though all they had to do was tie it around themselves, cling to it, they could be pulled up and live in safety and be free from the death that is coming for them. Could you imagine for them to have a rope sitting right beside them, yet never using it? That is what many people believe Christianity is. Jesus Christ died to set you free, to get you out of the well. And for many of us, we're still in the well with the gospel and with the rope sitting right beside us. And he's saying your marriage doesn't have to be like this. Your broken relationships don't have to be like this. Your addictions, they don't have to be like this. Your sin, it doesn't have to be like this. Your emotions ruling and controlling your life, it doesn't have to be like this. The depression, it doesn't have to be like this. Cling to the gospel. Believe that he saves you from the well. And hold on. And fight and let me get you out. Of where you are. And what a shame to just leave the rope right there. Grace, God's grace is designed to get us out of that situation. Not to make us feel more comfortable in it. And lastly, I don't want you to fall for the wrong master. We can fall for the wrong logic. We can fall for the wrong message. We can fall for the wrong master. He continues on with all this discussion about baptism. 
When we get to verse 5, he says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that the old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died from sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also be risen with him or shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves, here it is, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Don't go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Do you hear the commands? This is the first time in the book of Romans where he starts dishing out these commands. How we work with God in this work of sanctification. It's accomplished by our faith, our trusting, our believing. God says we are who we say we are. I'm not telling you you have to sanctify yourself. I'm telling you, have you believed yet that this is true of you? That you don't have to live in death. You don't have to live in sin. You can live for God. It's verse 9, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead. It's never to die again. Death no longer is master of him. For the death that he died, he died for sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its lust. Do not go on presenting members of your body as sin, as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin will not be master over you, and you are not under the law but under grace. Let me just run through these last points quickly. Don't fall for the wrong master. Your flesh doesn't have to master you. Now, understand your flesh, it works to enslave you. That's what it wants. Because I want you to know that sin is a captor. Sin, let me put it this way to you, it's a natural predator. You ever see the people that train bears? And they train lions and tigers. And, and I mean, it's just crazy to me. I mean, they'll take a full-grown lion and they'll name it something like Fluffy. And, and you want to look at them and what do you want to say? Fluffy isn't a kitty cat. I, I hate all cats, to be honest. I think they're all mean. They all, at some point, they just want to scratch your eyes out. That's just what cats want to do. Watch them look at you. Even the little ones are thinking, I would love to claw your face off. <laughs> How much more the bigger ones? And you're sitting there calling it Fluffy, when Fluffy, what does Fluffy want to do? Fluffy wants to gut you. Fluffy wants to eat you. You play around with Fluffy enough, and guess what Fluffy's going to do? You know how many trainers have been killed by those things? Why? Because they forgot what it was that they were dealing with. You can call it what you want, it's still a predator. Sin is a predator. It wants to steal, it wants to kill, it wants to destroy. That's all that it's ever wanted to do. And when you think you can dabble in it, when you think you can play with it, when you think you can get close to it, when you think that you know what, it's not a big deal, it's just a little sin, you are inviting death and destruction into your life. And God says, why do you do that when your flesh 
doesn't have to master you. And sin is subtle, guys. Just like a predator, most times they sneak up on you. They lie in wait. Watch those, those things from Africa, man. There's tigers and, and, and there's lions. And the tigers and even the lions in Africa. It's, it's crazy how they stalk you and they creep up on you and you don't even realize that they're there until it's too late. Nobody wakes up and says, you know what, today I'm going to ruin my life. I'm going to have an affair. I want my kids to hate me. I want my kids to never trust me again. Nobody just wakes up and, and makes that decision. Do you realize how subtle it is? Do you realize how many small, stupid decisions get you to that one big one? A little flirting here. A lunch just between you and someone of the opposite sex that you have no right having. I don't care what job you have. The trip that you take for business sitting at the bar like anything good's going to come out of there. No one says, I'm going to throw away my marriage. I'm going to start an addiction. I'm going to start lying to everyone I know. No one says, today is the day I'm going to get pregnant outside of marriage. Sin starts slowly, incrementally, subtly. And it's just small areas of compromise when you have forgotten the flat fact that your flesh, it is working, it is active, but it doesn't have to master you. Your sin doesn't have to master you. Our sins can become so large that it controls us. When it uses the terms lust or desires in this text, it's, it's an interesting word because it means desires in the Greek. And I, I, it's not going to mean anything to you in the word. It's epithumia. The reason I tell you is just to say that when you add epi on the front of it, it's this picture of stacking on, this picture of stacking something on. So when you have that in the word desires, it means that what our lusts are, it's this powerful thing in our lives where this desire that we have, it gets stacked on and stacked on and stacked on and stacked on until before we know it, it has control of our hearts. It controls us. And the Bible says, so you know what you've got to do. You've got to consider yourself dead to sin. That it isn't going to stack up on you. That it's not going to control you because Christ says something different. He says, refuse to let sin reign in your life. Have control over you. When he says, don't fall for the wrong master... I also want you to know that your feelings don't have to master you. That's probably one of the greatest problems we struggle with as a church. We trust our feelings way more than we trust our faith. Most of our decisions are made not by faith. Most of our decisions are made by feeling. They hurt me. I feel like I have the right. Things didn't go the way that I thought they would today. I feel like God isn't even there. I feel like God doesn't even love me. I feel like God doesn't. Listen, your feelings, if you follow your feelings, you are following misery. 
Don't let your feelings master you. Let your faith master you. Because if you're following the wrong master, then let me tell you what you're not doing. When we say don't fall for the wrong master, here's what I want you to believe this morning, that you, according to these verses, you are now alive in Christ. What that means is that if you want to overcome sin, it begins, this change begins by embracing at the very core of your being the new identity that Jesus Christ has given to you. It's more than ethical change. It's more than behavioral modification. It means that we identify with Christ and we come to the place that we understand that unless we are in Christ and Christ is in us, then we cannot live the life of God. If you want to know what it means to be united with Christ, as he speaks about in these verses, it's a term from horticulture. If you remember, it's the very picture of what Clint preached It's the idea of grafting something in. You take a branch that by itself would have died, but you graft it with a living vine. And now suddenly, what was going to be absolute death now has life flowing to it. That's what it means to be united to Christ. You don't have the strength. You don't have the power. You don't have the will to be able to stop sinning, not for one moment. If left to your own devices, you will be wretchedly lost and sinful before God, receiving the wrath that you rightly deserve. But if you were in Christ, suddenly you have been attached to the very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And you can live a life that is free. When you accept Christ, the Spirit takes the dead branch of your life and grafts it into the living root of Christ. And that's when His life starts to flow through you. And I want you to see, in closing, that you're now under grace. That is the starting point of your identity, that God has showed you a sinner grace. And he says he reckons to you life. That word reckon, I love the the illustration that I heard a while back about the word reckon. Literally, it has to do with, if you ever played cards, how many of y'all love a wild card? Yeah, because a wild card can become what? It can become anything. And it means that even though it's not a two, I can reckon it to be a what? A two. Or I can reckon it to be a three. Or I can reckon it to be a jack. That whatever I need, I can reckon it to be that very thing. When Christ tells us that he reckons, what what it means is, remember what he said in chapter 4. He said of Abraham, he said, because he had faith, that faith was reckoned to him as what? righteousness so God took faith and he made it righteousness he reckoned it to us to become righteousness now I want you to follow that line of thinking because that's what he said in chapter four but when we get to what he said right here in this chapter in chapter six he says now we can reckon ourselves what dead to sin We want to say, no, I'm in the flesh. No, I'm in the world. No, I'm just a weak person. No, I'm just human. No, we have all these excuses. And you know what God is saying? I want you to do one thing. I want you to reckon yourself. You have the wild card. You reckon yourself. You believe with all your heart. You, by faith, it took faith to get justified. It takes just as much faith to be sanctified. He says, because at the end of the day, you are reckoning yourself 
to be alive and not dead anymore. You're reckoning yourself to be holy and not sinful. You're reckoning yourself that while you were once a slave to sin, now you reckon yourself a slave to righteousness. In other words, just as we believe our way into justification, we believe our way into the power of sanctification. God gives you actual power when you believe that what he says is true. If we do, and Kevin, I want you to come. I'm assuming he's in here somewhere. If we do willfully continue to practice sin, let me tell you what that means for us, church. I want you to hear me. I'm going to say it again. There are many people lost in this room. They don't want to accept it. They don't want to believe it. Every Sunday you cling to your chair because the last thing you want to do is think that anybody around you would know that you've sat here for years and years and years and been completely lost. Let me tell you something. If you're here this morning and you have just continued to live in outright sin, that is the habit. That is the walk of your life. I want you to understand that if we do willfully continue to practice sin over and over, that means that we are either insincere in our repentance or that God's resurrection power has never come into us. Do you hear me? I don't know how to put it any plainer. If I told you to go take a fork and stick it in one of these outlets, do you think there's going to be some evidence of power? Yeah, we're going to pick you up in this corner of the room, and your hair is going to be standing straight up because you came in contact with power. To say that you could come in contact with the living Savior and His Spirit fills you and controls you and yet there's no evidence in your life of that power, that's impossible. It's impossible. And you ought not worry about a soul in this room and what they will think. You better think about only what God says. Because He's the one you'll give an account to, not any of us. And my prayer over the last weeks has been not even just for the people that have come into our church that don't know a personal relationship with Christ. Of course we invite them to be forgiven, to seek Christ's forgiveness, to repent, to believe, to surrender to God. We open that invitation today. Tim, you remember when you made that decision? It's one of the most life-changing moments for me. I remember here you were serving in this church. How many years and a man came and he preached the gospel. It was Steve Rummage in that chapel. And he preached about faith without works. It's dead. You remember that? Because, I, I mean, I remember like yesterday. Because I'll never forget seeing you stand and have the courage. Think about that. He'd been going here. How many, he stood and he said, I've never made that decision to follow Christ. It, I'll never forget it because that takes great courage. And his life has borne out that fruit ever since. Some of you here, you're right where Tim was. The question is, do you have the faith and the courage to do something? As we go into this time of the Lord's Supper, I want us to reflect, church, 
And this is what the Lord's Supper is all about. We reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made, the broken body, broken for you, the blood that was shed in order to write this new covenant of grace. It was shed for you. It was shed for me. And when we take of this Lord's Supper, you know what it reminds us of everything that we talked about today? Not only am I forgiven, but I am free. And not only am I free, but one day God is going to bring me into heaven. He's going to come and he's going to take us home. And one day, could you imagine that we're going to be just as he is and we are going to live without the presence of sin in our lives? That is what we remember when we come to this table, what Christ has done for us. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, I want you to remember this isn't for everybody in this room. If you're not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, the best thing that you could do today, what would change eternity, is that you give your life to Christ. That's the best thing that could happen today. But if you don't know Christ, that bread and that juice, that's, that's not for you today. Christ wants you to receive him today, to believe today. If, you, if you're not a baptized believer in Christ, then the first thing that you need to do is to be saved and to be baptized and be part of a church family. And today, while everyone else is taking this Lord's Supper, you can come and you can be saved. And that's the greatest thing that will happen today. I'm going to be right here. I just want you to come to me and I want to pray with you. I want you to know that you can have Christ. But church, before you take of this, I hope that you'll search your heart. Where are you in your walk with Jesus? Do you know who you are? Have you settled the identity thing in you that you know that you're forgiven and you're free, that you've been set free in Christ? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that not only is your walk right with God, but your relationship with others is right? Because you need to deal with that first. I'm not telling you don't take the Lord's Supper today. Don't walk in here thinking, listen, I'm not good enough to take the Lord's Supper. None of us are. That's not what it means. It means settle it with God. Pray. Let that forgiveness wash over you and go and take the Lord's Supper. Let his grace rain down on your life and go and take the Lord's Supper. But take time to reflect on what he's done and what are you letting it do in you. There's two cups underneath. That's where the bread is. The cup on top is where the juice is. If you want to go as families, if you want to go individually, I encourage you to go as the Lord leads you and when the Lord leads you to go. If you want to pray, fathers, with your children, husbands, with your wives, if you want to take someone beside you that you think may be here by themselves, ask them, would they like to take it with your family? Some people may just want to take it alone, but I pray that you will spend time with the Lord this morning and take this Lord's Supper and as we worship together. Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word says that we can come to this table, this table that exemplifies the love of Christ. Lord, the forgiveness that's available, the forgiveness that has set us free. And Father, I just pray that today we would find that freedom in you freedom to live as you've called us to live, to be holy before you, to have right relationships with you and right relationships with others. Lord, you died so that love would reign and forgiveness could come and change and transformation could transpire in this place. So Father, whatever work needs to be done before people take the Lord's Supper, someone who needs Christ, give them the courage 
today to come and say, I need to follow Jesus, like Steve Canton did, like Tim did. Lord, even those that have been here for years, Lord, there are still many in this room that need to make that decision. And Father, we'll give you honor and glory for all that you do. And Lord, as these people pray today and as they rise when you lead them to come and get this Lord's Supper, may you do a great work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.